Welcome to the Irish Tech News Podcast with Simon Cocking, Senior Editor. I'll be doing a series of interviews with people at the cutting edge of green tech, clean tech, and anything else that we think is interesting and worth listening to for you guys, our listeners. Hi. So today, uh, continuing our theme of talking about people who are passionate and experts around bees, we have somebody that we interviewed last year, uh, and I thought it would be quite interesting to have a catch up and see what how it's been since then. So first of all, uh, who am I talking to today? Uh, this is Sam Drogi, and I run the U.S. Geological Survey's Bee Lab over here in the U.S., very near to Washington, D.C. Oh, okay, interesting. And so... Um, I studied in DC. Uh, do you are you in DC or you're in Virginia? Like, where are you based? We're at we're in Maryland. So, uh, if anyone knows anything about the state, we're basically halfway between Baltimore and Washington DC, in a federal triangle, so to speak, of uh, facilities that do agricultural and uh, biological research. It used used to be in the country, but now we're surrounded by mm. suburbs. Yeah, it's, it's sprawled out. Um, yeah. What's your role specifically? You do, I mean, like, so you have amazing photographs that we'll put a link mm. into. So so I know you do a lot with bees, but, but what's your job description? Yeah, I would say the way to think about my job is support for other federal workers, federal scientists and managers, but also academic state and anyone who's doing research or study of native bees. And by support, we're doing baseline things like, how do you catch bees? How do you investigate whether they're increasing or decreasing? What's their trends? Uh, how do you identify them is a huge part of what we do because in almost every one of these cases, when you start talking about what's going on with native bees, you have to be able to identify them. In the US, there's 4,000 roughly species. And I say roughly because we don't even know the exact number. and the identification is tricky because many bees, and this is true around the world, not just in North America, are tiny. Size of a grain of rice, that's your average bee in your average chunk of property is going to be small enough that you are not going to pay any attention to them. And I should also point out because they don't give you honey and they don't sting you because they're mostly solitary, then we really don't pay much attention to them yet in most cases, they're doing the bulk of the pollination of our agricultural crops. And so people really don't realize how many different species are in their yards, in their area, are doing pollination. So in agricultural systems, we don't actually need honeybees in, in most cases in, the, in North America because the native species are doing the pollination. We have that many different kinds and they move into our croplands when they're given the opportunity. The exception would be very industrialized agricultural areas. For example, the Central Valley of California, there, we just don't have any capacity because the native bees need at least some modicum of native habitat to uh, remain established um, so that they can move into agricultural areas. The rest of the nation pretty much has a, uh, uh, a mosaic of natural areas and agricultural areas, um, and the uh, native bees do most of the population. We're not very aware of these native species because they're so small. The average bee about the size of a grain of rice, they don't sting, they don't give us honey. 
we can ignore them. Pollination has always just happened. It's only recently that we've had to focus in and pay attention to what exactly is pollinating our crops. And certainly all the wild bees pollinate all the wild plants because that's how it works. They developed that system way before we arrived on the continent. Mm -hmm. But in the ag systems, we always assumed honeybees did it, but it turns out that's not the case. And now that honeybees have a lot of issues in the in North America regarding pests and introduced pathogens and generally unfavorable conditions in some circumstances, loss of beekeepers and a um, greater expense to uh, having bees. You know, in, in other words, people purchase bees for pollination. That cost is rising. We've seen a consummate increase in studying what's going on. Turns out native species are doing a lot of that work. And then how to manage and augment your native bee population, which you largely get for free. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, looks. And so w when we spoke to you last year, you said that there were uh, probably 20,000 named bees and many more to be named. And, and as you've just described, that some are so small that you know, how, how do you even begin to work out how many bees there are around? So if you're talking about the total number of bees on the planet that are described, that's way over in one tiny pocket of the research world for bees. And those are, we would just call them taxonomists. So they spend a lot of time and it turns out it's pretty tricky. It's not like, oh, that's a new one. I'm just gonna give it a name. You have to address what's been published before, similar species. You have to go to museums and try and get additional material. Now it's going to require that you do molecular DNA work and compare it to other molecular DNA in case there's matches or you're mistaken. So it turns out that it's tricky and there's relatively little support by the federal governments and state governments to doing that kind of work. It's not super sexy, but <laughs> except for us, the bee people. Uh, it's uh, not the kind of thing that people are looking to fund, but it's something that you have to do in order to be able to catalog what species are in an area. Now, if you're just talking about going out to a spot and figuring out what a species list might be, you're in pretty good shape for that. We know how to do that. Uh, the issue in terms of how do you capture bees, how do you hunt them, how do you collect the specimens? The problem though then becomes, in addition to the fact that some of these species have never been described, so you might not know them from um, looking them up in guides, is that they're tricky to ID. Very few people, maybe still in a couple handfuls uh, level, in North America can be given a set of bees and have them successfully put names on most of them. So Ooh. you would never have that with birds, right? So yeah. a lot of times we contrast these things with uh, birds or flowers. You don't have problems with like, oh, is that a new bird species? Or that's that new one with the, you know, the extra large bill that no one has bothered to give a name. Yeah, that doesn't happen. But that's common and a problem in the world of bees in North America, less so in Europe, but they're still pumping out a few new species there too. And certainly if you go to Africa, South America, you have a lot of the bees that you're going to find will not have a name. 
And then even if they don't and you wanted to put together a list, the problem in, in a good chunk of the world is to figure that out, you have to have this hodgepodge collection of papers that were published by a variety of people in a variety of languages mm. that address some subset of the bee fauna, like one genus. Here's a guide to all the bees in Asia of, you know, uh, panergynus or something. So it's yeah. tricky. That's our problem. We don't know what these things are and nobody can just lance out there like bird watchers do and reel off lists of species. Yeah, I mean, and I imagine in the insect world in general, I mean, it's a bit like, you know, butterflies and moths, you know, um, is, is this both uh, a challenge and also one of the reasons why you enjoy being in this space? Oh, yeah, it's so much fun. I don't have to trot off to another continent to find new species or discover things. I can do that essentially in my backyard, certainly at my place of work, which is on a wildlife refuge. We've described and found new species there. Wow. Um, and we're constantly learning about their natural history. For example, recently we discovered that a bee that had been described um, is actually a specialist on chestnuts. So it only goes to the American chestnut tree as uh, to gather its pollen for its young. And that was new. We have another that only goes now we discovered that only goes to daughter, which is a parasitic plant that most people frankly just ignore because who would think about looking at bees on something that isn't even green? That's that. Those are these are the kinds of exciting things that thrill a person like myself, and probably doesn't thrill a whole lot of other people. I have to say, but it really keeps me going, and it's exciting in that sort of um, nerdy bee natural history kind of way that um, uh, has driven a small subset of people into jobs like mine. Yeah, I, I, and yet, and yet, it, this isn't just a niche thing, though, because you know, I mean, bees are also extremely important, and I think people are, are beginning to realize how seriously important they are for pollination. I mean, th that is the case, isn't it? That, that a large number of uh, plants require bees to pollinate them, and and like you say, yeah. possibly bees we don't even realize. You know, not honeybees, but of other types. Yeah. So we often out a figure of that roughly 75% of all plants require insects to pollinate them. And the bulk of those insects would be bees because of their life history, because they're using the pollen. So they're going to be targeted by the plants more often. And I can also tell you that in the last year or so, there's been a greatly increased presence within the federal government of people interested in learning more about what native bees are doing in terms of pollination of crops, what okay. the conservation of native bees might be. And we've had several meetings I was on just yesterday. Um, the agencies are creating pollinator coordinators. Um, they're beginning to look at how do we answer some of these questions of like what the species are or how they're doing, status and trends. So it's it's an exciting time because the resources are beginning to flow, whereas the opposite was the case in the past. It was, we were do the study of native bees and insects and biodiversity was seen as pretty old school natural history. That's what museums were shutting down and they were seen as not relevant. But now all of a sudden with honeybees having problems and the realization that, oh, 
honeybees are not the only pollinators. And in some cases now, maybe they're not even the primary pollinator. And if they're gonna disappear, we better know what's going on because we have huge swaths of the agricultural system that require bees of some kind to move the pollination of, uh, or to move pollen from plant to plant to affect uh, the growth of crops such as fruits and brambles. And now we're even discovering things like soybeans, which are self-pollinated, but if they have visitation by bees, the yield goes up. Cotton, similarly, the um, weight of the bowl, which is the, uh, the whatever, what is that? Is that a seed? No, there's seeds in there that they have to get rid of. It's the fluffy stuff that makes mm -hmm. up cotton increases if you have insects visiting them. So we're seeing now that people pay attention, because again, remember, people didn't really pay much attention to bees and pollination in most crops because it wasn't a problem. Yeah. So now it uh, has the appearance of a problem, but we're magically discovering that um, we both have a more complicated situation and that we are benefiting from bees native and honeybees a lot more than we thought in the past. Yeah, look, I think it's I think uh, we, we, we have both realized that we have a serious problem. And yet also we're realizing that things are far more complex than we thought they were. And it's it's not as simple as as we had imagined, which is it's a bit like, you know, like as we look at space and stars, we, you know, we discover things are far more complicated and it seems to be the same here. When, when we spoke last year, you said that uh, bees were in general facing large challenges. So so a year on. Um, are we still seeing large falls in bees? I mean, like it sounds like there's a, a realization of their importance, um, but but are we mm -hmm. are we are we fighting a negative trend in terms of what's out there? Well, I wish I could answer that question, uh, <laughs> and we really can't in North America. A little bit better off in in Europe, but not a whole lot better. What we lack is a survey, a mechanism that is um, statistically statistically valid to track those trends. So I wish I could give you some figures that say, oh, you know, bumblebees are up and um, uh, mason bees are down or this species is doing really well and these are not. Basically, uh, the problem with the whole notion of insect apocalypse is that the data aren't there in a nuanced way. So the apocalypse is going on without any doubt. So the, the way to think about the, the problem of native bee decline and insect decline and really the decline in nature in general is that wherever we take over a, a landscape, either through heavy duty agriculture or even relatively light agriculture and where we live, we're super efficient. So we move into a house on uh, five acres. Well, we're going to look at those five acres and say, we need to tidy that up. So we'll make a lot of it lawn, we'll cut out the underbrush, we'll modify it, all oh, that's negative. Same thing with paved areas. The more paved areas that are out there, uh, the fewer places that an animal can live because obviously they can't live in a house, they can't live in a paved area. And so what we're seeing is declines uh, simply due to the fact that we're using up the landscape. That's irrefutable. But what about those areas where we haven't paved? Our parks, our natural areas, our little pockets, that little 
tiny woodlot that is left over between the houses or along the creek, how much habitat mm -hmm. is there and how, how many bee species um, and other plants and animals that are interrelated to the bee species exist there. And we don't have those figures except to say that within a matrix that's mostly, let's call it suburban or highly um, modified for with lots of people's houses, what happens is that the habitat largely um, leaks out most of its biodiversity. So it becomes simplified, the crow and sparrow uh, animals, including bees thrive and a lot of other things are gone because they're tied to uh, rare plants, rare plants are gone and um, we bring in invasive species, they take over, they modify the habitat. So it's negative, but only, I, I only wish that we did have actual figures. We're not counting them in any kind of systematic way right now. There's no national bee survey. And there's really not anything of significance with um, at a state level. So that's interesting. That seems to be the classic. Uh, if you can't measure it, then it's hard to really know where you are. And and, and that is a challenge, I guess, to come up with ways to effectively measure it. Um, so in Ireland um, and in Europe, you know, we've had large amounts of lockdown on and off since March. So for the, the last eight, 10 months now uh, with, with the whole COVID related, how to deal with this. Um, with this, this has brought a real upsurge in gardening, the interest in gardening, uh, rare seed companies have had massive runs on seeds and things so uh, people have made a lot more observations and comments like for a while the planes had stopped flying and there was a lot less uh, human activity and people were noticing nature more and equally people were aiming to be more self-resilient and to do more in their own gardens um so th this could potentially have a positive impact so i guess one what are your thoughts on it and has has it been similar there or, i mean i know you've had much less of a lockdown there so I guess, what are your thoughts on that? I would say that some of those trends are present. It doesn't seem as obvious to me as to in a way that you were just speaking about, which is that a lot of people have gone to gardening and that that increase, I think, is certainly true. But I wouldn't say it's a anything close to some kind of game changer. I think mm -hmm. it's pushing people in the right direction. You know, they have more time to garden. What are we going to garden? There's an interest now in native plants and native plant gardening. We are working now with some of the local uh, groups in our region to uh, grow native plants that are good for pollinators. Uh, so I would say, um, yes, that that's a, a positive trend. But I would say that it's probably not something that's going to make a hugely significant difference at this point to the native bee populations. There's just way bigger factors in terms of how we're managing these landscapes and the amount of mowing going on. You know, counter to what you're saying, there's also a group of people like, I'm at home all the time, let me get rid of all the rest of that brush that I have in the back. You know, <laughs> that kind of thing could equally be said to be a factor um, impacting bees and the overall impact of a bunch of relatively idle people stuck at home might be to make matters worse. We're all, over here. It's all about your lawn. So you want to present well, and that means every lick of the 
this is from my opinion, every lick of the original native landscape should be gone and you should have a lot of angular square um, chunks of uh, landscaping and maybe throw in a few rocks, maybe some non-native um, uh, shrubs that are evergreen that don't provide anything. Your lawn should be absolutely one species cut to five inches with not a stitch of any other kind of weed in there. Mm. So I would argue probably it's negative. Yeah, I guess with these things, there's you never know completely what's going to happen. Um, and there's, I mean, so I hear you. Um, and then, so one of the recent bee things that uh, bee people we spoke to were data centers where they were looking to work with the local uh, pollination programs to plant the other kind of things that you're talking about um, more native species uh more native species and things that would encourage stuff so i what you're saying is is that um it, it's when 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 big changes happen it, it's it's never a sure thing that it's a linear positive result that's going to come out of it and we're definitely seeing that i mean we are seeing uh data centers here aiming to do native planting and pollination to encourage things um but like you say equally probably bush bashing and just making that uh, which is not ideal what when people ask you like what what they can do to help bees what what i guess that some of it's coming through do the opposite of what you just described what, what do you mm -hmm. suggest to people and let me say that the trend right now is that there are more and more people interested in uh, homeowners who are interested in increasing the number of native bees orienting their gardening and their landscape to native plants and repatriating in some ways uh, the things that were lost when that house and those grounds were initially created, de-lawning, so removing lawn and putting back in native plants. These are great trends and we're seeing a lot of people interested in that and interested in the work that we do. And I am giving Zoom lectures day and night seemingly um, to garden clubs and the, uh, the groups that are very common here in the U.S., which are master gardener groups, who then spread that information out to others. So within the gardening communities, uh, there is a huge shift towards native plants and thinking about pollinators. It started with butterflies, which are not great pollinators, but that was the entree insect. And now mm -hmm. people are thinking about native bees and that their garden is supporting the environment, not just supporting their flower vases. <laughs> Look, uh, yes, I hear you. And uh, that sounds positive to some degree, at least. Um, wh what are your sources of uh, information and inspiration? How do you uh, stay up to date with what wh what's the most relevant information and, and who inspires you? Well, we have our own network of uh, researchers and interested in people who have it's very old school the listservs. So people put up information about what they're finding or they're studying or questions they have. And that interconnects us uh, with people around the world. The scientific literature starts showing these kinds of, um, you know, uh, is reflective of uh, interesting new things. So we're crawling through that. And because we have, um, uh, uh, our email uh, interconnections and, and listservs and Facebook groups, 
that information gets shared and propagated out. So I'm I'm touching base with a lot of people in that way. And we're as a support group, so the RB lab is supporting lots of other people. Um, and so we hear from graduate students who are sort of on that bloody edge of research because they have to figure out what am I going to do? What's my contribution? Um, what's the new thing that I am going to study? So we are helping them out because we both know how to identify their bees. And uh, mm -hmm. as a grad, new grad student, that's difficult to almost impossible. And they also have to um, get some advice often of how do you catch bees? How do you set up a program? What works? And we've made all those mistakes already and continue to do our, to, to continue to make mistakes, which is our skill set that we actually learn from that. And so yeah. we hear from lots of people and um, are in touch with the researchers from around the world. Yeah, look, I think you're you're at a very um, a privileged point, really, that, yeah, like if something new is coming up, you're going to hear about it. So, yeah, I, I think you're a good person to go to. Um, how do people find out more about you guys, your work and what you do? Well, the best thing is actually to follow us on Instagram or Tumblr, but more people are on Instagram. We have a Facebook group, too, and the handle or whatever that that thing is called mm -hmm. um, is uh, a at sign and then the um, words or letters USGS that stands for US Geological Survey B I M L B Inventory and Monitoring Lab. So USGS B I M L. And we put out uh, almost every single day a post with a lot of blogging behind it on the nitty gritty natural history things you don't find in a general article about how to help bees or the public media or the newsprint uh, or most web things. So we're, we're feeding people in hopefully a slightly humorous way and not with a lot of jargon, information about the natural world that you're not gonna see elsewhere. These little details that um, excite us and um, we present that with uh, I would say super sexy pictures that are yeah. done with, uh, you know, stacked and the type of resolution that would allow them to be put up on a billboard. We haven't seen them up on a billboard yet, but they certainly, because they're public domain, used throughout the world um, over and over again, often without any attribution back to us whatsoever. But we don't care. We are public servants and we take that seriously so we are very happy to be in the position where our materials some of it very technical like how to do the statistical analysis of population trends and some of it just fun and interesting which would be like our instagram accounts uh, that are um, uh, going out there and giving people more information and inspiration and insight into this world that very few people have any idea exists. Most people, it's like honeybees, oh yes, bumblebees. That's it, or the bumblebee. So they have no idea that their yard is filled with all kinds of other species, and they could have a whole lot more if they just changed their planting strategies. So that's- Look, yeah, 
no i think definitely i mean and i follow you on instagram as well and i think it's fantastic and it's beautiful and you know i didn't realize that there were blue bees green bees you know and and i think you do curate it in a way that like you say it provokes interest and therefore from that you know like i don't know much about it but i know more from because of that and then therefore you know that that like with all these things if you have if you have an interest you're more likely to to be supportive of what happens so yeah right you know you personalize personalize the world so that if you are in the position where you might be destroying it it's a little more difficult when you actually have a visualization of all this grand biodiversity of these tiny things that you're impacting too tons of attention and we're talking about all of our social media kind of protected us from being on the list to get rid of so we love pulling in more people because it just documents that mm -hmm. um, we have value to the public. I'll just cool. give you, I'll just toot my horn here one second, which is to say that USGS has 8,000 employees and lots of different groups. And we're the number one uh, social media in whatever category you would want to put out of all the US geological survey. So we have people who do volcanoes and earthquakes and maps and water. And it's the B one that excites the public the most. Yeah, and you see, and I, I think you've been creative and you've curated it well. And, and and in this day and age, you have to have a bit of that as well. You have to be able to market and communicate. Unfortunately, to, because it's 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 like there are you know like you're competing with pandas and whales and everything else almost. Yeah, yeah. So I I will point out that one of the problems of the scientific world is that they're too oriented towards the PhD jargon-filled technical reports. And even when they do pictures, which are equally detailed as mine um, or our labs, the problem is, is they're not very sexy. They're on a dead gray background. They're, all the lint is there. There's a giant pin through it. There's no, uh, no interest in you know, putting in black backgrounds or using light that models the the specimen into three dimensions. It's like we do science and uh, we don't even chat. We don't even care about the public because we're looking at our next scientific publication. It's a problem. And you know what? Museums and other places are going away and they're taking down the PhDs. So, you know, get yeah. you change your behavior. Yep. Yep. Adapt and survive. <laughs> yeah so yeah, we look, make a, mistakes but we learn from them well yeah and i think that that's it goes with the territory really doesn't it you know like mm -hmm. bees do the same bees will work out if something's right or not and move on you know absolutely look uh it's been a pleasure to talk to you and um it's very interesting as well so thanks for taking mm -hmm. the time you bet we hope you enjoyed that podcast and we will be bringing you more across as diverse and interesting a range of stories as we can find. You're welcome to reach out to us on Twitter, LinkedIn or by email and give us any feedback and let us know what you'd like us to cover in the future. Thanks and keep listening.